Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, it is me, Frank Turek. I'm sorry that uh, Dan couldn't be here today. He's recovering from an illness. Please pray. We're not exactly sure when Dan will be back, but your prayers will help get him back. So I'll be filling in for him this week every day, but Thursday. For those of you that don't know, uh, I normally host a program on Saturday morning. That's 9 Central, 10 Eastern. We call it cross-examined, or sometimes we call it, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist uh, and we provide evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. Our website is crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org, for the American Family Radio Network. And uh, today, since it's Valentine's Day, I thought we'd talk about this concept of love and marriage and what is love. Uh, is love a feeling? Is marriage all about feelings? Uh, what what really is love? Because I think our culture is confused about love. Does love require approval? Because our culture seems to think that, well, if you love somebody, you're going to approve of what they do. Is that really true? I want to explore that here today. And maybe later in the week, we'll get into a couple of financial issues and also some apologetics, some evidence for the faith. But today, let's talk about this concept of love. And Valentine's Day in particular. And my wife and I, my wife and I just celebrated our 36th anniversary just last week. And we don't celebrate any of these uh, holidays, so to speak. They're not really holidays. Holiday means holy day. But these these kind of invented uh, days like Valentine's Day, because it would just be for me and for her, it would be sort of perfunctory to just say, oh, it's Valentine's Day. I got your flowers or I got your candy or something. It wouldn't mean the same. If I got her flowers or candy or whatever she wanted on another day, just out of the blue. But if I have to do it, well, <laughs> you know, because it's Valentine's Day. I'm not saying don't wish your your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or girlfriend a, a happy Valentine's Day. I'm not saying that. But for us personally, we just think, yeah, you're just patronizing me. Come on. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Every day is Valentine's Day, right? It means a lot more when when you're not expected to do it, in other words. But in any event, we've been married for 36 years, and marriage, we think we have a great marriage, but even if you think you have a great marriage, marriage is difficult. Why? Because if you put two broken people into one relationship, there's going to be trouble. There's always trouble. You know, it's Rodney Dangerfield who famously said, my wife and I were happy for 20 years, and then we met, (laughs) right? Because marriage, just like any other relationship, can be difficult. We're broken people. We need grace in order to have a good relationship, a good marriage. And that is why it takes work. In fact, Tim Keller, pastor from New York, who, by the way, you should pray for Tim Keller because he's uh, got pancreatic cancer, and uh, he's trying to recover from that. It's very difficult to recover from that. He's retired from uh, his church in New York, uh, but he still puts out uh, a lot of information on his podcast, and he's still writing books. In any event, um, uh, Tim Keller 
has uh, a book called The Meaning of Marriage, which I think is a book that everyone should read. Uh, also, Gary Thomas, he's, uh, I think he might be a pastor out, in, uh, out on the uh, left coast there. Uh, he wrote a book called Sacred Marriage. And I'm paraphrasing the subtitle, but I think the subtitle is very profound. The subtitle goes something like this. What if God created marriage more for our holiness than our happiness? Marinate on that for a second. What if God created marriage more for our holiness than our happiness? In other words, marriage is more about being sanctified than it is about happiness. Although, who doesn't want to be happy? We all want to be happy. We get that. But it's really about our sanctification. And in our sanctification is something that's going to live on long after we're dead because we build our character here and we enhance our capacity to enjoy God, not only now but in eternity, by how we're sanctified here, by how we become more like Christ here. So when you're put into a relationship where you are actually forced to think about somebody else other than yourself. It causes you to become more like Jesus. It causes you to become sanctified. In fact, when you get married, um, you're marrying somebody probably because you love them, at least we hope. In fact, I heard one preacher put it this way at a marriage. He said, today you're getting married because you love one another. From now on, you will love one another because you're married. Let me say that again. Today you're getting married because you love one another. From now on you will love one another because you're married. What does that imply? Well, it implies that marriage takes work and marriage isn't all about feelings. Love takes work and love isn't all about feelings. In fact, there's probably nobody in the modern era who has written more profoundly on this than C.S. Lewis. And uh, for those of you that haven't read Mere Christianity, consider yourself undereducated. You should be reading, if you haven't read it already, read Mere Christianity. I go back and reread it because I think it's so profound. And Lewis, when he wrote Mere Christianity, actually was never married. He got married later in life. But he has a chapter in Mere Christianity on marriage. And it's really worth reading. I'm going to read segments of it here on the program because I think it's very profound. If we're going to talk about love and marriage and what marriage is and what love is and whether love is a feeling or not, this is very, very profound. Here's what Lewis says in my version of Mere Christianity. It's on page 97. He says, The idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or a promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves, while they remain really in love, know this better than those who who just talk about love. As Chesterton pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. The Christian law is not forcing upon the passion of love something which is foreign to that passion's own nature. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion, which their passion of itself impels them to do. So he's talking about the fact here that if you're naturally in love, you actually have the feeling of love, you want to bind yourself to somebody else. 
That's what love is. Love seeks what's best for the other person. And that involves binding yourself to the other person in order to seek what's best for him or her. That's what love is about, seeking what's best for the other person. And in order to love somebody, you have to seek what's best for them even when you don't feel like doing so. And I'll get to this in a minute because vows are not necessary if you have that feeling of love, right? In other words, if you have that that feeling of infatuation where, where all you can think of is the other person and, and, and all you want to do is be with the other person, you don't need a vow, right? You don't need to vow that you're going to seek what's best for the other person for the rest of your life when you have the feeling. The only time you need the vow is when you don't have the feeling. That's why you take a vow. And as Lewis will point out here, as we get through this a little bit uh, later, he's going to point out that you can't vow feelings. You can only vow actions. You can only vow behaviors. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because that's what Lewis is going to cover. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Frank Turek, me, filling in for Dan Celia. Our program is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's also in podcast, so... If you want to hear any of our programs, just look for the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. And what we do on this program normally is we present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. Right now, we're talking about this issue of love. Does love require approval? Is love just a feeling? It is Valentine's Day. What does all this mean? And we're going to unpack it further right after the break, so don't go anywhere. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in just a couple of minutes, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. I'm filling in for Dan Celia. You know Dan is normally here in this hour, but he is recovering from an illness. We request you pray for him so he can get back. Uh, not only to obviously good health, but to also uh, host this uh, fine program here on financial issues. Today we're not talking about financial issues, although <laughs> finances are certainly related to marriage. I remember one preacher saying, there ain't no romance without finance. <laughs> you know, you you got to make sure you've you've got an adequate level of finance in order to have good romance because it's very difficult. Uh, marriage is hard enough, but when you got money pressures... That makes it even harder. Uh, so <laughs> you've got to listen to Dan when he's here to get your financial house in order. That'll make your romantic house go all that much better. Anyway, we're talking about this concept of love. What is love? Is it just a feeling? And uh, I was reading from a section of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Let me continue with what Lewis says about this issue of love. Uh, He says, and of course, the promise made when I am in love and because I am in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits one to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise never to have a headache or to always feel hungry. But what, let me stop right here. I mean, this is, this is profound when you think about it. Our culture thinks that love is a feeling. So if the feeling goes away, well, you're not in love anymore, and that means you have the right to find somebody else who you are in love with, right? Because if love is all about a feeling and you don't have the feeling, oh, look, 
When you go up on the, on the marriage altar, you don't pledge to feel a certain way. You pledge to behave a certain way, whether you have the feelings or not. And Lewis here is going to explain that you actually don't want those feelings of being in love to remain in that intensity that they began with. He'll explain here in a minute. Let me continue with what Lewis says. He says, but what, it may be asked, is use of keeping two people together if they, know, if they are no longer in love. He says there are several sound social reasons to provide a home for their children, to protect the woman who has probably sacrificed or damaged her own career by getting married from being dropped whenever the man is tired of her. But there is also another reason of which I am very sure, though I find it a little hard to explain. And I'm jumping down here because he explains it better here. He says what we call being in love, he puts it in quotes, being in love is a glorious state. And in several ways, good for us. It helps to make us generous and courageous. It opens our eyes not only to the beauty of the beloved, but to all beauty. And it subordinates, especially at first, our merely animal sexuality. In that sense, love is the great conqueror of lust. No one in his senses would deny that being in love is far better than either common sensuality or cold self-centeredness. But as I said before, the most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of our own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last. But feelings come and go. Let me stop right here. You're, you're listening to Frank Turek uh, filling in for Dan Celia. We're reading right now from Mere Christianity, a section of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, because we're talking about love. What is love? Is it love just a feeling? We're, we're here on Valentine's Day. What does it mean to a marriage? What does it mean to relationships? And let me interject something here, something very important, of course, that Jesus said. Jesus said this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Okay, how did Jesus love us? With feelings? No, Jesus loved us with actions. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. So when he says, love each other as I have loved you, He wants us to sacrifice for one another. And men in particular are called to do that when they are called to love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? It means you've got to sacrifice yourself for your wife because Christ sacrificed himself for the church. So love, although it's associated with feelings, is not a feeling alone. And when the feeling of love, of being in love, goes away, that doesn't mean that your vow is up. That doesn't mean you ought to walk away from the relationship. Lewis is going to go on to explain here that actually something better is going to result from this. Here's what he says. I'll, I'll read that last sentence again. He says, knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings, feelings come and go. And in fact, whenever people say the state called being in love, usually 
does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that level of excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? Stop, stop. I mean, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Remember when you, for those of you that are married, when you first met your, your spouse and, and you, you fell in love with them, you know, you had that feeling of infatuation where you could only think about the other person and everything was lovey-dovey and whatever the other person did was just wonderful. You couldn't wait to be with them. Okay, that's all great. That starts the relationship. But could, could, do you really want that feeling to last forever? I mean, if it did... You couldn't get much else done. I mean, <laughs> if you're just consumed with thinking about the other person, what would happen to your work? What would happen to your other relationships? What would happen to your responsibilities? What would happen to your heart if it was beating like a hummingbird like it was? I mean, on and on and on. You couldn't function that way. You wouldn't want to try and function that way. Here's what Lewis says. What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both parents ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other, even at those moments when they do not like each other as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. They can retain this love even when each could easily, if they allowed themselves to be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to the promise of fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it, unquote. Exactly. The being in love infatuation phase is the explosion that started the marriage. But this quieter kind of love that is reinforced by grace, reinforced by habit, reinforced by a vow to seek what's best for the other person is the engine that runs the relationship, that is at the center of the marriage. Of course, Christ is at the center of the marriage if it's a Christian marriage. But the idea that you're going to sacrifice yourself or sacrifice your own desires and your own will to seek what's best for the other person is the kind of love that keeps relationships going, whether they're marriages or not. That's the kind of love that you're vow to keep. You can't vow you're going to ha- your heart's going to beat like a hummingbird for the next 50 years. You, you couldn't last that long anyway. You can't vow you're always going to feel lovey-dovey. That's not what you're vowing. Lewis goes on. He says, if you disagree with me, of course, you'll say, well, he knows nothing about it. He was not married. You may be quite possibly right, but before you say that, make quite sure that you are judging me by what you really know from your own experience and from watching the lives of your friends, and not by ideas you have derived from novels and films. Let me add, I mean, Lewis wrote this in the 40s. Not, what, not the ideas you have derived from novels, films, and social media. 
or TikTok, which is part of social media, or Instagram. That's not real life. In fact, what's one of the problems with social media? When you, you know, people rarely put on social media anything that doesn't look airbrushed, particularly on Instagram. Everyone's having a great time, right? Oh, look at me! Look who I'm with! Look what I'm doing! Look what I'm at! Look what's it? And you're, you're looking at this and you're going, I, I don't have that. I don't have. That's not going on in my life right now. And and you think, oh, I'm inadequate, or there's something wrong with me, or why isn't life all sunshine and roses? That's all I see on Instagram. That just makes you feel like, well, you're missing something. There's something wrong with you. That's not, that's not real life. Social media is not real life. Twitter is not real life. Twitter's a sewer, by the way. Got more people mocking one another and insulting one another on social media. It's a sewer. So you either have a sewer or you have something that is an airbrushed view of life that isn't really true. And in either way, you're, you're feeling bad. Better to get off social media than to than to deal with that if 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 you can't keep that perspective. So he says, Lewis says, let's make sure you're not getting your ideas from novels, films, and let me add social media. This is not so easy to do as people think. Our experience is colored through and through by books and plays and cinema and social media. And it takes patience and skill to disentangle the things we have really learned from life for ourselves. People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they are not, they think this proves that they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change. Not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. Amen to that. Uh, I remember... James Dobson famously saying, you might think the grass is greener across the street, but what you need to remember is that all grass needs mowing. All gardens need tending. In fact, you can think of your marriage as a garden. If you let it go too long, there's going to be weeds engaged all over the place, embedded all over the place. You've got to get out there and weed. You've got to get out there and work. You've got to get out there and fertilize. You've got to get out there and try and advance the relationship, and that takes work. And by the way, if you do treat somebody in a sacrificial way, normally the feelings will come later. But you're not going to rely on the feelings to cause you to... Seek what's best for the other person. You have to seek what's best for the other person, and then the feelings will come. And even if they don't, you vow to do what's right regardless of your feelings. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, filling in for Dan Celia. We're back in two minutes, so don't go anywhere. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network, filling in for Dan Celia. Please pray for Dan. He's recovering from an illness. He, he probably will not be back this week. I'm scheduled to fill in every day but Thursday, and someone else will be filling in on Thursday. Um, today we're talking about this issue of love. What is it? Is love just a feeling? I mean, it is Valentine's Day, and people have feelings, and that's a good thing if they have positive feelings about their spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend. But is that what a relationship is really built on? That's what we've been talking about today. I want to mention, for those of you that do follow our ministry, it's at crossexamine.org, crossexamine with a D on the end of it. 
I'll be at Corinth Reformed Church uh, this Wednesday night doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That's in Hickory, North Carolina, not far from Charlotte, where I live. Uh, 6.30 to 8.30, all the details are on our website. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be up in Minnesota. The Minnesota, up in Lindstrom, Minnesota. Uh, in uh, It's the Lakes Free Church Apologetics Conference. It's uh, February 25th uh, to 26th. Then I'll be speaking at the Sunday morning service at Lakes Free Church in Lindstrom, Minnesota on February 27th. By the way, uh, no extra charge for this, but the Lakers, you know, the NBA team, the Lakers, they originated, of course, in Minnesota uh, because Minnesota is the land of lakes. So I'll bet you never knew that, but there's some more useless information that you don't need to know. Anyway, uh, so we're talking about this issue of love. And I'm actually reading a section from Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, Profound Insights on Love. And uh, he was just uh, talking about the fact that people who think that uh, being in love is what keeps a marriage going think that, well, once that feeling goes away, and it goes away, thankfully, because if it didn't go away, you couldn't live very long. You you couldn't concentrate on anything else. Your heart would be beating like a hummingbird too much. You'd probably die after five years if you had that feeling. Continually, That feeling goes away, but that's not what love is about. That's just the explosion that started the relationship. It's not the engine that keeps it going. And people think that once that feeling goes away, they're no longer in love anymore. That now they have a right to find somebody else that they're in love with. And they wind up going from one relationship to another relationship, creating destruction along the way. Inadvertently, I might add. They're not trying to do this, but that's what happens. And so what Lewis is pointing out is if you base your whole, if you base your entire uh, relationship on feelings, the relationship isn't going to last very long. And you're going to blow up the lives of a lot of people. And, and let me say one thing about this, ladies and gentlemen, that some of you are not going to agree with, but that's okay. I can take it. I'm originally from New Jersey. You can email me and tell me why you don't agree. But part of the way Christians make decisions contributes to this. And, and I don't have time to unpack this completely. This would take a couple of programs to do. But there are two ways that Christians tend to make decisions. One is the, is the um, traditional way that Christians make decisions. And that is that they think God has one person for them to marry, one job to take, one school to go to. And in other words, it's X marks the spot. And God's going to send you hints, and you've got to read these hints and discover what God's will is for your life. He has one person for me to marry. I just got to go out there and find that person. He has one job for me. He has, you know, I want God to open this door and close this door so I know which way he wants me to go. This is called the traditional view, and I would say that probably at least 80% of Christians agree with this view. All right. That's not my view. My view is called the wisdom view. What's the wisdom view? The wisdom view is, is that God gives you a... a um, a para- parameters you need to stay in, normally they're moral parameters, and then you get to choose what you want to do inside those moral parameters. For example, with who you marry, God gives you basically one moral parameter or one requirement that you need to satisfy in a spouse, and that is just marry somebody in the Lord. That's what Paul says. Marry a Christian, in other words. Don't become unequally yoked. Find somebody who's a Christian and then if you find someone who's a Christian, then it's up to you 
who that person will be. As long as the person's a Christian, you can marry that individual. Now, there may be, it may be a matter of wisdom as to whether or not you marry this Christian or that Christian, certainly. But once you decide who to marry, you've created God's will in your life. And I think this is the, the biblical view. Because, look, why would God, get, God give us a Bible at all if he's going to tell us what to do specifically every day? Why would he give us a book of Proverbs? Why are the Proverbs in there? Those are wise sayings for living, for decision-making. And I think it does not bring us to maturity Maturity. if God's going to tell us what to do every day. Imagine a parent, a helicopter parent, who is still telling their kids what to do when they're 30, 35 years old, who is still calling them up every day. You got to do this, you ought to do that, and let me make this decision for you. No, that, that person would not reach maturity. What the parent should do is give them moral principles, and once they're out on their own, that person needs to make their own decisions, hopefully based on those moral principles. Now, why do I say this contributes to people thinking that they have to find a new mate when they're out of love, when they don't have that feeling of love anymore? Because here's the way we tend to make decisions. Oh, we had a spark between us. And then our favorite song came on the radio at just the right time. And this was confirmed. And that sign was confirmed. And I saw her name on a license plate. That must be that God wants me to marry this person. This is the person for me. And they wind up getting married on these hints that they think they've gotten from God. And then when they run into trouble in marriage, because everybody runs into trouble in marriage. Why? Because we're both fallen. And if you put two broken people in one relationship, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be friction. There's going to be annoyances. There's going to be challenges. That's just the nature of relationships with fallen people. But people think when they get into that difficulty, if they made the decision based on these hints, you know what they wind up thinking? They wind up thinking, I missed the sign. I missed the one person God wants me to marry. And so they go, oh, I made a mistake. I I shouldn't have married you. I've got to go look at these other hints and figure out who I should marry. It has exactly the opposite effect you think it would have. You would think if they thought God told them to marry this person, they would marry that person and stick with that person. But instead they go, I must have misread the signs. Now, obviously, if God wanted to tell you something, he could. And he can do that anytime he wants. He doesn't have to use hints. He doesn't have to cause you to put together a puzzle or to solve a puzzle if he wanted to tell you directly he could do so now does God do that well he might but I don't think that's the normative way God does it I think God mostly communicates through his word that's why there's a book of Proverbs there that's why Paul says marry in the Lord now some of you may disagree with this line of decision making that's fine if you want to go further in it I highly recommend you read a a series of three articles by my friend Greg Kokel over there at Stand to Reason, who also has his show broadcast here on the American Family Radio Network. Just uh, go Google, Does God Whisper? Does God Whisper? by Greg Kokel, K-O-U-K-L, and you'll find a series of these three articles that will explain this viewpoint of the wisdom view of making decisions rather than the traditional view of making decisions. In any event, let me go back to C.S. Lewis, who last we read, was saying that 
when these people who think being in love is the is the ground of a relationship, uh, when they find they are not in love anymore, so to speak, they think this proves they have made a mistake. That's exactly my point. And they are entitled to change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. And Lewis goes on to say, in this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The sort of thrill a boy has at the first idea of flying will not go on when he has joined the Royal Air Force and is really learning to fly. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go to live there. Do you ever notice that? You could buy a house because it's got a great view, say. And then after a while, you got this great view, and you don't even seem to notice it anymore. You don't enjoy it as much as you did when you first saw it. You can live in the most beautiful place in America. Some of the most beautiful places in the world are in America. You can live there, and after a while, you kind of get jaded to it. You don't notice it anymore. The thrill fades away. This is what he's saying. He says, does this mean it would be better not to learn to fly and not to live in a beautiful place? By no means. In both cases, if you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated uh, for by a quieter and more lasting interest. What is more, and I can hardly find words to tell you how important I think this is, it is just the people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the sober interest who are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. The man who has learned to fly and becomes a good pilot will suddenly discover music. The man who has settled down to live in the beauty spot will discover gardening. Lewis goes on to say, This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill, that is the very worst thing you can do, let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow. And you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. Time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet, here's where people go wrong, ladies and gentlemen. We want to make thrills our regular diet. This is when we go from one relationship to another because we suddenly get attracted to one person even though we're, we've vowed to to love another person, and that we want to run off with this new attractive person. Here's what Lewis says about it. He says, if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. You might as well say that about pornography, ladies and gentlemen. This is one of the problems with pornography. Other than the moral issue, the practical issue, is you need more of it to get the same thrill. You'll get bored with the old. This is why so many, tragically, people, after starting with pornography, they fall into child pornography. And pretty soon, the FBI is going to be at your door, rightfully so. I know of people that have been taken away and are serving 20, 30-year prison sentences for possessing child pornography because the thrill they originally had with normal pornography you can get anywhere couldn't be satisfied anymore. They had to try and keep the thrill going. Not only are they paying with time in prison, they're part of the sex trade 
industry that is pulling children into it. It's just awful, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, a lot more on this. You're listening to me, Frank Turek, on a program called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, filling in for Dan Celia. Please pray for Dan. Hopefully he'll be back soon. Be back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. What is love, ladies and gentlemen? Is love just a feeling? Are feelings the center of a marriage? That's what we're talking about today. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, filling in for Dan Celia this week. Pray for Dan. He's recovering from an illness. And uh, we're talking about this today. It is Valentine's Day, so we thought we'd talk about this issue of love and one of the most profound things ever written on this comes from a man who wasn't married when he wrote it. It's uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, the chapter on marriage. And just before the break, we were talking about how people try and make thrills their steady diet, and they wind up blowing up their own lives and the lives of other people. Uh, And if you try and chase any thrill down, this is what's going to happen. Just like if you think every relationship that you have has to be a, a relationship of thrill and being in love, You're going to go from one relationship to another relationship to another relationship. And uh, you're going to, as Lewis says, be a bored, disillusioned old man or woman for the rest of your life. And he goes on to say, it is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women uh, uh, meandering or trying to recapture their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back that feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. Lewis goes on to say, another notion we get from novels and plays, and let me add social media, is that falling in love is something quite irresistible, something that just happens to one, like measles. And because they believe this, some married people throw up the sponge and give in when they find themselves attracted by a new acquaintance. But I am inclined inclined to think that these irresistible passions are much rarer in real life than in books or social media. At any rate, when one in uh, or at, at any rate, when one is grown up, let me add something. They're always resistible. You are not. You are not required, if you have feelings for someone, to go with that person and leave the spouse that that you currently are with. You're not required to do that. It's not like measles, like you have to go with this person. Oh, because we have such feelings for one another. No. No, you you don't vow feelings. You vow to seek what's best for the person you married. That's what a vow is. You don't need the vow when you have the feelings. You only need the vow when you don't. That's why you take the vow. Anyway, Lewis goes on to say this. He says, when we meet someone beautiful and clever and sympathetic, of course we ought in one sense to admire and love these good qualities, but it is not very largely in our choice whether this love, or no, he says, but But is it not very largely in our own choice whether this love shall or shall not turn into what we call being in love? Yeah, of course. It is our choice. He says, no doubt if our minds are full of novels and plays and sentimental songs and social media and our bodies are full of alcohol, we shall turn any love we feel into that kind of love. 
Just as if you have a rut in your path, all the rain water will run into that rut. And if you wear blue spectacles, everything you see will turn blue. But that will be our own fault. Unquote. Exactly. That will be our own fault. No matter what feelings you have for one another, you are not required to pursue those feelings. In fact, you are required to love the person you've already committed to. That's what love is. It's not love if, as soon as it becomes inconvenient for you, you drop the person. This is why living together, in addition to being immoral, according to the scriptures, is really not treating the person you're living with with true love. Because if you truly love the person, you would commit to the person. If you're just living with them, what you're saying is you're good enough to use, but you're not good enough to really love. You're not good enough to commit to. Ooh, I know that hurts, but that's the truth. That's the truth. You're not good enough to commit to. I'm not going to, I'm going to leave my options open in case you become inconvenient or in case I, I don't feel for you anymore or in case I find somebody better. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna use you till that that uh, that next person comes along. Happy Valentine's Day. Ooh, thanks so much. That feels so good. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, love in a marriage, just like love in any relationship, takes work. Things aren't gonna be hunky dory and lovey dovey all the time. It takes work, it takes gardening, and that requires us to become more like Jesus. This is why Gary Thomas said in his book, Sacred Marriage, and I'm paraphrasing the subtitle, what if God made marriage more for our holiness than our happiness? In fact, you know what? I think the most important verse in the Bible other than the gospel itself for today's culture actually comes from Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Notice it doesn't say follow your heart. The culture says follow your heart. The Bible says guard your heart. There's a big difference. If you follow your heart without moral restraint, you're going to blow your own life up and the lives of a lot of other people. But if you guard your heart and you direct it properly, then you can live a life that ultimately will please yourself, please others, and please God. But if you follow your heart, the heart that is deceitful and wicked, the heart that will lie to you, the heart that will want what it wants without moral restraint. If you follow that heart, you're going to blow your life up and the lives of other people as well. No, you can't follow your heart. You have to stop and stay committed to the person that you've committed to. You don't follow your heart. You follow Christ's heart. Your heart can lead you astray. Our friends at the Babylon Bee, I don't know if you know who the Babylon Bee is. I talk about the Babylon Bee quite a bit on our program. 
the Babylon Bee is a uh, a Christian satire site, and they can make points with satire that <laughs> maybe aren't made quite uh, as well directly. And uh, they had a they had a um, uh, a headline. I don't have it in front of me, but it went it went something like this: uh, "Newly discovered Hitler Diary." reveals he was just following his heart, <laughs> right? That Hitler was just following his heart to exterminate the Jews, right? That's what the culture tells you. Follow your heart. It's so Oprah, right? Follow your heart, whatever your heart wants. Well, Hitler was just following his heart. Oh, wait, Frank, that's not a good comparison because Hitler murdered people. Well, exactly. What am I saying here? And what are they saying? You can follow your heart as long as your heart is taking you in a moral direction. But if it's taking you in an immoral direction, you can't follow your heart. That's the whole point. You need to guard your heart. You need to say no to things that you know are immoral. This is why when we see that, that funny headline, we go, oh, yeah, yeah. That wouldn't be an excuse for Hitler to say I was just following my heart. He was doing something immoral. Well, the same thing is true in our personal lives. You just can't say, well, I'm following my heart. I've left my wife now, and I'm following my heart with this other woman. No, that's immoral. You're, you're blowing your life up, even though you don't think you are. And you're blowing up the life of your spouse and your children, if you have any. And you're sinning against God because you're following your you need to guard your heart because if you don't guard your heart you're going to wind up in the wrong place very quickly the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it said jeremiah jeremiah 17:9 cs lewis put it this way he said surrender to all our desires obviously leads to impotence, disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, and everything that is the reverse of health, good humor, and frankness. For any happiness, even in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. Did you hear that? Quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. This is why Paul tells us to renew our minds. Why do we need to renew renew our minds? Because our minds have been polluted by the world. They've been polluted by books and novels and films and social media to think the wrong way about life. And we live in a fallen world with a fallen heart, with a fallen mind. That's why we need to renew our minds. That's why we need restraint. That's why we need to stay in the word. That's why we need to ensure that we have people around us that can hold us accountable. That's why we need to keep our vows. Because if we don't decide to keep our vows, if we decide to follow our hearts, again, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. So what is love, ladies and gentlemen? Love is seeking what's best for the other person. And according to Jesus, love is sacrificing yourself for the other person. He said, love one another as I have loved you. He said, this is my one new command. Love one another as I have loved you. How do you love one another? You sacrifice for them. You put them, their well-being above your own. You don't do that when you run off with the next person you find attractive. You don't do that when you lash out at the other person because you don't have feelings for them anymore. You don't do that because you have some selfish thing you want to do 
and you're just going to forget what the other person really wants. So on this Valentine's Day, remember what love is. Remember why you take a vow. You need a vow when feelings aren't there. All right, friends, great being with you. Uh, again, please pray for Dan. Hopefully he'll be back soon. Lord willing, I'll be back with you tomorrow. Check out our podcast. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We normally cover apologetics and issues like that. But today we just covered the issue of love. We'll be back tomorrow with another program. Also check out our website, crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. And I'll see you here tomorrow. God bless.